0: Uh, welcome to this episode of Views from Down Under. Uh, as usual, I am uh, with the gang here. Uh, we have uh, Professor Nicholas Kuh, uh joining us online from Dunedin. Uh, I have Neil Van Vary, Junaspia who's uh, going to be with us uh, for this week. And will be online in the next uh, edition of our episode back in the Philippines. And then um, Orson Tan right here, and myself, Alex Tan, uh, your host for this program. The last two weeks uh, have uh, been very, very eventful to say the least. Uh, There's tons of news that we can actually comment on. Uh, Unfortunately, we don't have uh, five hours to do this program. uh, So we've selected two that we thought that uh, were quite interesting. Uh, From our perspective, the first one is the Camp David trilateral that happened uh, on the 18th uh, over the weekend, uh, hosted by President Joe Biden of the United States. And uh, he hosted uh, President Yoon of uh, South Korea and uh, Prime Minister Kishida uh, in Camp David. So we'll talk a little bit about that and what the implications of that to the region uh, with regards to alliances and security partnerships in the region and what have you. Uh, and also the other news about the BRICS uh, uh, Summit, right, um, just ended and wherein they admitted six new members. So for our listeners, uh, what are the BRICS? This is an acronym that was uh, invented by a Goldman Sachs uh, economist, actually. Uh, and it represents the uh, Brazil, Russia, India, and China. That was the original until the S came in, which is South Africa, so BRICS. Interestingly, uh, in Chinese, it's translated as golden brick, uh, literally, jinchuan. Uh, so very, very interesting. We'll talk about that as well. What the implication to a uh, alternative to G7 may be? Uh, is there such a thing as de-dollarization? Uh, and why, why are these countries coming together at this point in time uh, in contemporary political economic history? All right, so let's go with that first topic, the Camp David trilateral uh, of uh, United States, South Korea, and Japan. All right,
1: who wants to get the ball rolling on that? Nick, why don't you start? Well, thank you very much uh, for the opportunity to just get this ball rolling. And I guess I'd start off by saying that this is one piece in a larger jigsaw puzzle that has been constructed over the last few years. So viewed on its own, um, one could make different sorts of assessments, you know, is this a plus or a minus, but really looking at it in a broader scale, when you look at the bigger jigsaw puzzle, it does come up and amount to something that's quite significant. Now obviously this trilateral cooperation still needs to be institutionalized over time. Um, And so we'll have to see how this evolves. And obviously, the strategic interaction, which we talked about a lot in our previous episodes. And China is not going to uh, just not respond to this. They will. And this is where we really need to kind of assess how the evolving international system works in East Asia. Uh, and this is where the institutionalization point really matters. And in the sense that these institutions that are being constructed, and when I say institutions, I, I will refer to AUKUS, I refer to this, I talk about the Quad, I, I talk about the larger multilateral institutions in the region that really constitute the status quo in the system in Asia. And when you put this all together, I think it does add up to something that contributes to stability. And it Perhaps more importantly, puts the onus on the Chinese to respond in a way that um, you know really gauges for the region what their intentions are for the future. And this is where I think you know I think there is a clear majority now that really does support the existing international system. I don't think we could have said this at the start of the Biden administration, but I, we can say this now.
0: You know, I'm curious just just to uh, keep the ball rolling on the discussion uh, is that why now? I mean, what is the motivation for these countries uh, to come together? Particularly, we're talking about Japan and, and South Korea and and we know that uh, the two countries had not the, had you know, they're not exactly that chummy, so to speak. Uh, there have been outstanding issues between the two countries, but somehow President Yoon was able to, you know, uh, step over all of those issues and try to reach out. So I'm just curious, you know, uh, why now and and how did uh, how did this all happen together? What was the stimulus? Was the, was the catalyst uh, to make this trilateral happen? Uh, I remember last week we were talking about um, the the last episode. We did talk about the impact of the Trump uh, Trumpism, so to speak. Just generally speaking. And Nick, you did mention that uh, if the United States is uh, receding a little bit in the region, then it gives the other countries more agency. And yes. is this, you know, I was just thinking, is this part of that? You know, is this part of South Korea saying that, oh, we want to, we want to do more for our own
1: security, uh, and not just wait for a larger country to do it for us? Yeah, that's an excellent point. It's certainly the case that. If you look at the international system, objectively speaking, US power has declined from a relative perspective. They're obviously is still very, very strong. But from a relative perspective, the last 20 years or so have really been a story about the rise of the rest. And in that respect, these other powers that are rising, like South Korea, uh, Japan, Singapore, Indonesia, et cetera, et cetera, have a major stake in the system. And to the extent that they're Stepping up and contributing in a positive way, and by the way, let's include Australia, which was the prime mover for AUKUS. Um, you know, this really amounts to a coalition that is seeking to um, stabilize the the region and on the broader level, the international system. So, these are all positive developments because if you do the counterfactual and you say to yourself, "Well, what if they if we didn't have this middle power contribution?" Then you know it really would be. Feeding into China's narrative about the region, or rather, states uh, led by the United States seeking to contain the United States, but I don't think anyone can really buy that argument mm-hmm. now.
0: Mm-hmm. That's an interesting point. Very, very interesting point. I think um, something about uh, we've been uh, another term that we've introduced into uh, the conversation as well is this idea that the middle powers picking up picking up more agency in a way is. Uh, to me, more burden shifting, so to mm-hmm. speak, rather than burden sharing as such, such that, uh, you know, we the middle powers are picking up some of the, plugging up some of the holes, so to speak, that is, uh, that the hegemon might be leaving. Uh, but it also proves, and, and Nick, you're right, uh, it shows that, you know, Australia, South Korea, and Japan, they have as much a stake in the system, uh, and the stability of the system being very trade-dependent countries uh, as well, right? So, it's not just all United States national interests or strategic interests. These countries have their own strategic interests and national interests. And these interests are very much in the region. Right? Yep. It's very, very much in the region. Exactly. So, yeah.
2: I think what Nick was saying also about the international system, we've got to remember that the international system at the moment is in a bit of instability you forget, you think about the Russia-Ukraine conflict and how it's shifted that paradigm of where the international system sits. We've had, what, more or less roughly, what, 10, 13 years of, of relative peace from the time where, where, where Afghanistan and, and Iraq kind of faded away from the public consciousness. And yes, we had Crimea in 2015 and all that, but it's, it didn't blow out to that extent. And then suddenly last year, February, boom, you've got Russia invading Ukraine. And people, a lot of people forget that Russia sits in Asia as well. Yeah. It has mm. a east eastward border that is in that Pacific region as well. Yeah. You've got North Korea now that is, you know, constantly flashing its new new uh new intercontinental bis- missiles or whatever it is in that parade. It's got uh, you know, and then North Korea in that parade they had China and Russia, Russia's uh, showing, you know, up, showing yeah. up and watching them. If you're South Korea, you, you suddenly realise that you can't just sit back and wait for the United
1: States to save you. You've yeah, got the same to, with Japan. Yeah. Yeah. The same with Japan. And and if I can add, um, the same for New Zealand. In the last couple of weeks in July and August, we've seen a major shift in New Zealand foreign policy in the sense that we've had five major reports come out that essentially are supporting the... Uh, more robust stance, shall we say, that's been adopted by various countries in the region, ranging from Australia um, through to South Korea uh, and Japan over the last 12 months. So again, there's this idea that there is a coalition of states that are not just talking about doing things, but they're actually stepping up and doing, um, you know, or taking measures that actually seek to preserve the international order in Asia at this point in time. Uh, and so to the extent that New Zealand actually is stepping up with its various reports and is, as we know, after the election planning on making some changes, we'll, we'll see the scope uh, in time, this uh, really suggests that New Zealand is stepping up making a contribution to the region. Okay. Yeah, I
2: think it's important to also highlight that what New Zealand's done with this new new raft of policy documents is not part of this whole idea of demonising the, the other side per se, but it's it's about maintaining the status quo of the international order that's benefited everyone Mm -hmm. else in this region. Yeah,
0: yeah. I think that's a good point to make.
3: Yeah, Yeah, uh, just to swing the conversation back to this this trilateral meeting as as it is, um, I think it, it needs to be said that one way of looking at it as well is recognition on the part of the United States that there is indeed room for this kind of agency yeah, for, for these powers. And and if you look at the beginning of the Biden administration, when they laid out the Indo-Pacific strategy. This was already in the works. And it's one of the 10 point action plan that they laid out, expanding security and economic cooperation with, with, with Japan and, and South Korea. And I think why is this happening now? It's a, it's a matter of timing. And this is because you have a close kind of leadership uh, friendship, rather, between the leadership of Japan and, and South Korea, which is kind of unprecedented if you look at the history of, of, of Grieving, mistrust. Grievances that... Mistrust grieve. and yep. grievances between the two. But also where this happens, uh, Camp David. Yeah. Um. You know, we all know uh, all of the major meetings that have happened in Camp David. You go back to Churchill and Roosevelt when it was still Shangri-La and Warsaw and all of these things. So the, the symbolism there um, is, is quite interesting. But yeah. it's not only these powers saying that there's room for their agency, but in fact, America recognizing that it does need and yeah. there is room mm. for it, the agency of these powers.
2: A yeah. counterpoint to that And it's more of a question that I might pose to all of you is that, is this a recognition on the part of the US that they are stretched to a point that they have to involve these middle powers? I think
0: there's a slowly, I I think there could be a realization that they could not, you know, the hegemon can no longer carry the whole load Mm. and the reality that, you know, uh, the cost of hegemony is really quite high. Mm -hmm. Mm. And in a way, I think it is a sign of American. Uh, not a sign of weakness as such. I think uh, the strength of a country is leadership is being able to bring in diverse group into mm, uh, yep. to your coalition. It doesn't mean to say that you have to carry the whole load, right? I mean, we we know that in a way that uh, delegation in a way, mm, you know, right. if we, if, right. if if they're able to delegate and and build a very robust network where in you know uh, everyone trusts each other, then that's that's a uh, a very, you're right. I, I I think there's a lot to do with that. And June, you were mentioning that American thinking that there is room for these type mm. of a middle power, middle power contribution is is indeed uh, yeah. a re, uh, uh, I should I say a maturity of right. American uh, a strategic thinking now mm. that that leadership does not mean to say that they're the only one carrying the whole load mm-hmm. sure. nor pushing everybody and bullying everyone because in a way, it, this is a coup for, you know, it's a, it's a, coup for, it's, a it's a foreign policy coup for Biden, you know, yep. bringing these two leaders together. Uh, although I have to note both Kishida, Kishida is not the most popular right now as far mm-hmm. as public opinion is concerned. Mm. And, 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 and Yoon, is ruling over, is governing over a, a, quite a polarized country, you know? I mean, 35% conservative, 35% uh, progressive, and then the 30% in the middle that can swing mm. swing the vote either way. So, you know, and, and we need to remind our listeners as well that the South Korean presidents essentially uh, are one-term presidents. Mm. You know, they don't succeed themselves. They have six years to do this. So there will be questions asked. How long can this this trilateral hold uh, mm. uh, you know, uh, over beyond Kishida, beyond Yoon's uh, presidential term.
4: Well, what struck me was the same point that you brought up. How long is this going to last, and what's and where do we see this going? Because we've brought up the concept of domestic audience costs before in this podcast, and I suspect that's a bit at play here both in South Korea, given the polarization, and and in Japan as well. Uh, to a large degree on account of the historical baggage that that relationship has. But I suspect one could also extend that to the US. If Biden were to lose the election next year, and indeed if Trump does make a return... How long will this last? How long will this last? Because to put it mildly, he's always been... Well, Trump has always been slightly sceptical of the role that alliances play and the role that multilateral and trilateral organisations play. But it's also important to recognise that perhaps there are still some differences within this relationship, certainly in the economic sphere to a certain degree. Korean and Japanese and American companies are competing in the same sectors. There is a bit of... There is a divergence of views, I suppose, on... um, the the American policy of restricting tech investments in Ch- into China and mm-hmm. how Japan and Korea and to what degree are they willing to sign up to it? So I think it's important to recognize that those that those divergences still exist in the relationship, but also without that close political friendship which the three leaders currently enjoy, where is this going to end up?
0: Yeah, uh, but I think you know, uh, in in addition to that though, uh, piggybacking on 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 the agency arguments that we have been suggesting, is the fact that. Um, if there is a change of administration in the united states the two countries both south korea and and japan bo- realize that they do have to work together yep. because they have a stake in the stability of northeast asia mm-hmm. you know uh whether whether america brokers this deal in the future it now shifts the agency the responsibility of agency to uh south korea and to japan and you can see what's happening there as well i mean uh, our, our friend, uh, col- friend and colleague Peter Lee, uh, has written uh, yep. this piece about South Korea's middle power role in in its Indo Pacific strategy, mm-hmm. and and how it's now reaching out to New Zealand as a case in point. It's reaching out to Australia yep. uh, as a case in point, and and uh, uh, they have now have joint exercises with the Australians. They are supplying. Uh, defense equipment to Australia, which is uh, I-, I think really, really very interesting in that regard.
3: I think that part of the answer as well to the question of why is this happening now is that the American foreign policy establishment realizes everybody in all of these countries have a deadline, and what better time now before <laughs> you know that <laughs> deadline actually happens. But there's there's sim- there's there's also some caution uh, right now in calling it the. Uh, a freeway alliance, a yep. tripartite alliance, yeah. because what it looks like to some is that you really have two bilateral alliances, you know, mm-hmm. Japan and the US, a Korea and, and the US, but not freeway, again, because you go back again to the history, history of mistrust yes. uh, of, of not so good relationships between Korea and, 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 and Japan.
2: Yeah, but I think to pick up on Neil's point about whether if Trump wins the election or someone in the sphere of Trump's policies win the election, will that change? I think we need to remember that Trump was the first one who kind of suggested that the hegemon cannot carry the burden. Mm. He was the one who, who asked, who demanded that the NATO countries pay their fair share as well. It's, I mean, it might not be the exact same thought process, because you know, Trump puts it in a very crass and, and, yeah, and crude yeah. crude manner. He doesn't sell it well. But it's essentially the same. It's it's a uh, acknowledgement that, you know, you the middle powers, these these states that are in partnership with the US need to do a bit more because the US cannot be the only one that that sustains the global security. They can't be the world's policemen forever. It's, it's,
0: it's really quite interesting, uh the White House uh statement on it. Uh that it says that they will, they, they are still, uh, you know, ASEAN centrality is important. They're going to work with existing uh, institutions and all of that. Uh, <laughs> and you know, yesterday the last episode we talked about the myth of uh, ASEAN. But just to inform some of our readers, if you if you think of it from a from a realer perspective of international relations, why we're seeing all these middle laterals all coming in this region is because you know there's no. Uh, the assumption of anar- anarchy uh, in international relations is there, right? Yep. So it's state-centric politics, mm-hmm. you know, and and you can see very rational thinking, you know, amongst these countries about cost and benefit analysis that they have to do these kind of things in order to secure their own security, uh, and maintain their own national security. It's a, it's it's in very much in line w- in a way with realist yeah. thinking, right? That uh, that. Uh, and and these two quick
1: points, though. I I actually. Point out this um, perhaps obvious but necessary point, which is that the strategic competition idea came in during the Trump administration in December of 2017. So, Trump, the Trump administration's role is 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 dual. On one hand, uh, they were the ones who initiated this idea that China's rise needed to it was much more was not as benign as previous. Uh, administrations, uh, particularly the Obama administration, had um, had assumed, right? Certainly the first Obama administration, although there was a change with the second Obama administration. But So in that sense, Trump, while having these kind of counter uh, or rather untraditional ideas about the role of the alliances in U.S. policy, uh, did actually set the correct course, I yep. believe, given yep. China's foreign policy and how it's evolved. But at the same time, while we talk a lot about agency, there is agency for the PRC. Of course. Mm-hmm. And, of course. And, and the, on this point, the PRC has demonstrated, under the since Xi Jinping came to power, but even in the last few years of the Hu, Hu Jintao administration, a remarkable ability to galvanize a countervailing coalition to form against the PRC. And that is the the one thing that's really quite surprising, yeah. Uh, and and you know, really needs to be comp- comp- uh, repeatedly underlined, mm-hmm. uh, if only to highlight the fact that you know what the the, the PRC is a regime that is that is not uh, unfamiliar with mistakes. In fact, they continue to make strategic mistakes year after year, uh, right up to the COVID and even post COVID era.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and, and we're, we're just, uh, you know, we've uh, talked about this privately and, and how, how uh, the PRC managed to uh, shoot themselves in their own foot, you know? I mean, that somehow they don't, whatever they say when, we, when the region hears it or when the world hears it it, it, it sounds a little bit too difficult to understand why they're saying it the way they said it uh, and managed to upset Yep. Uh, the member uh, countries in the region. We've talked about, you know, uh, Neil and I. We've wrote about this, uh, the conundrum that China faces, and what we call the pottery barn rule. Right. So, so you break it, you own it. Yeah. So, in a way, in a way, what we're seeing as a reaction of the middle powers now, uh, reacting to China's rise and much more aggressive behavior, the last few weeks, the after our recording of the episode on the on the coast guard situation in South China Sea it, there continues to be these har- har harassment of philippine ships philippine boats uh, trying to supply a military outpost in the South China Sea so this continues to happen and despite despite the fact that you know everybody's reacting towards it now so this very interesting situation and i'm i'm I think there's a lot for us to observe uh, with regards to how far this goes um, and how far the middle powers this time outside of the United States act amongst themselves, right? I' I'll, I'll, be, I'll be really interested to see, you know, how far along that uh, Japan and Korea and Singapore, yeah. as a case in point, uh, uh, Malaysia and Indonesia and New Zealand and Australia do more exercises on their own and mm-hmm. take more of the take more of the uh how should I say this the maintenance of the rules-based international order that has benefited the middle powers yep but take ownership of it and not just having an external power uh be kind of like the main impetus or the mm-hmm. main stimulus for that.
1: Yeah that's a good yeah. one. this is where I think to the extent that we're moving to a bipolar era in the international system, right? It's, it's obviously a transition. To the extent that you can compare bipolarity during the in the current era with the Cold War era, this is where there are distinct differences mm-hmm. between the Cold War and the post-Cold War era. Uh, and um, I, I really don't like this idea that there's a new Cold War. I just see it as strategic competition. Yep. But certainly at the structural level, there are two major great powers in both 1945 to 91 era and the era since 2008 and moving up uh, to the present. Yep. And so, in that sense, it is there is a similarity. But to you know to move and call, call it a new core War is is it's a distortion of what's really going on. And precisely because in the current era, uh, many middle powers and non middle powers are actually stepping up and contributing to the maintenance of the order, yep. which which we've discussed today.
2: And, and I think the important thing is that these middle powers are in the regional backyard of the great power itself. Something that, you know, if you compare back to the Cold War, the USSR didn't have. But going back to, Nick, your point about China making these strategic calcula- mistakes in strategic calculation, uh, how much of that is also a matter of history and the way they see themselves in the region and, and their position in that in the sphere that they are in as well. Because when you think about it, and we're going to talk about BRICS in just a bit, you know, the when Modi was in South Africa on the sideline of BRICS, what did he tell Xi? He said that, you know, if you want to, if there's going to be anything moving forward between China and India, what's the one thing that needs to be settled? The border, border issue. Yeah. Yep. And, and if that doesn't move forward and you're in a partnership in BRICS that you're supposed to be working together, but Modi is saying, nope, we cannot move forward unless we
0: settle this. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's It's really quite interesting to to see, you know, as uh, as, as I said, you know, when we're going forward on on this, how, you know China was talking about uh, that they are their vision, one of their vision is actually to have very mul- many m- poles, a multipolar world, right? Mm-hmm. They in the past, they thought that uh, EU could be cultivated to be one one pole, Saudi Arabia would be one pole, you know, all these other poles. But one thing that they have not realized is that by their action, you are increasingly seeing a middle power that is not a complete pole as such, but becoming a block uh, uh, within the region. Yeah. And and in a way, when you think of when you think of the implication of that for ASEAN, I think it's really quite interesting. I'm just 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 you know see how I how I go how far I go in this analogy. In a way, ASEAN is uh, like many countries uh, trapped between. <laughs> Uh, heavy trade dependence with China mm-hmm. and 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 security relationship with the United States, but when the middle power starts playing important role, it actually relieves pressure from ASEAN to pick. You know because they can now develop these relationships with Japan, with Australia, with South Korea. You know without. Without you know worrying about you know China accusing them oh you're you know or you're a lackey of the United States and all of that stuff right mm-hmm. because, so it gives choices to these other smaller powers that there are options beyond these two poles granted granted that the multi uh, that the middle powers uh, are closer in in norms so to speak yep. and envision uh, of the of the rules based international order. To the current hegemon, right, rather than to the supposed revisionist challenger, right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but having said that, through the motions of China and the relatively the relative weakening of the United States, the agency of the middle power actually created a democratization, mm. if you will, of the international rules based order that allowed small powers like New Zealand to now have a a role to play. You know, it's it's. Quite an interesting uh, way to think about it. I mean, it go- I, I think, think this behold- goes goes back to like
2: balancing theory, right? The idea that if you if you have two powers balancing in that region itself, it creates that room and that space for the small powers to navigate, yeah. and 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 have the agency to to kind of pick and choose their own way forward, because if we didn't have US being invested in security in East Asia, we didn't have China trying to, to establish itself as the regional hegemon. Then we are kind of forced with only to deal with one and that mm. limits the space that we can operate in yeah. as a small state. Mm. But now that you have two, that you your leeway or your, for lack of better word, the the path that you can chart through the choppy waters becomes more. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. The,
1: the yeah, choices. Just to pick up on that point, um, I'll just make a quick one. Um, so this actually ties in directly to the AUKUS debate in New Zealand. Now, if that's the case, so I'll just uh, yeah. I'll ask, I'm basically just asked the, the panel here, um, then why should New Zealand take the risk of joining AUKUS? Because as you know, there's this is a debate within the, the kind of New Zealand IR uh, community about AUKUS. And some people suggested uh, that really we, we should take a kind of neutral or agnostic stance and others you know, including myself and Ruben and some others have said well really we want to get into AUKUS to contribute as well as to secure gains and so it's, it's, it's a debate that's going on and we won't really know till probably years later how this turns out but it, it does what's the panel's view on whether we should actually be more proactive or maybe not
2: I think the I think the problem for New Zealand is it's not a balancing small power, it's already chosen mm-hmm. previously.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think you It know, doesn't it, want to say that though. Yeah, it doesn't yeah. want to say that. It doesn't yeah. want. To
0: but, but to use uh, to use uh, uh, my uh, my mentor's uh, word, uh, uh, New Zealand w- he would not consider New Zealand a pivotal middle, middle power. power. <laughs> you know, yeah. so that uh, in a way we don't affect that much. You know, and I, I I'm not um. I think the calculation uh, of joining or not joining the issue is is that what can New
1: Zealand bring, bring to the to, table? To the table, sure. You know, so this I mean, ties into this idea that well, okay, maybe we can't bring uh, uh, more um, know, as much as say some other country like South Korea. Yeah. But we do have a stake in the Australian-New Zealand alliance. I, yeah. I agree, and yeah. I
4: think,
0: and I think in in part ways. Uh, there is this the what's happening with the trilateral and the ability and, and the agency that Australia, Japan, and South Korea are doing, actually provides New Zealand this avenue, in my view, to collaborate with Japan, South Korea, and Australia. Mm. Yeah. You know that it you can still do a lot of what the AUKUS will be doing. Yes, you know, uh, but in the sense that you are literally more with your, with countries that you can work you, you can yes. work with with yeah. Yeah, for example south korea's indo-pacific strategy has a lot to do with with bringing in the pacific and bringing in new zealand into play as well uh japan is certainly doing that yep. right and and i was just noting how how progressive and how developed the japanese and the south korean uh naval maritime uh, industry is right mm-hmm. and how it can provide uh Coast Guard vessels at a very, very good price to many of the countries in the region. So there is a role to play. And I think this idea of New Zealand being able to burden shift uh, at its appropriate level. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I, I I, really am not sure what we can bring. Mm. Uh, we have a very small military force. Um, we, yeah. we have a very small trade. We, we don't have prim- we have else. primary goods... That- Producer, and we're a primary goods producer, yeah. but I think we can, I think New Zealand can should and must find a way to collaborate with this middle powers mm. that are acting right yeah. now. Mm.
3: In short, the, the question is not whether New Zealand should join the AUKUS or not, but rather, you know, what are the other options for New Zealand be, beyond the AUKUS or not question because while the order still remains largely asymmetrical, yep. we could see that there is in, indeed a multipolarity, not just of the partnerships and the polls, but also of the choices. Yeah. And so for New Zealand, it's not always like, it's never been, it shouldn't be a zero-sum game. Yeah, and, and I think the yeah. question for us, and, and Nick going to the question, so if we
0: ask, if we ask uh, our leaders uh, and our people, do we here in New Zealand believe in maintaining the rules-based international mm-hmm. order i think that's an overwhelming yes mm-hmm. right yep do we believe that stability in northeast asia and southeast asia is of interest and importance to new zealand's own sustainability and national interest i think we will say that yes yeah. too yep right so then the next question is how do we best do it mm. right. right right with the resources that we have and with the limited limited resources that we have but very, uh, but we're, we have a very, very vested interest in it. Yeah, yep, right. So, so the like you said, um, you know, uh, Nick, when when China managed to shoot themselves in the foot <laughs> uh, very well, it it made these middle powers act mm. yep. on its own because we realize, I think the many of the middle powers, Japan, South Korea, realized that they have a big stake in the program in in, in the stability of the region. They cannot afford for a United States to withdraw, mm-hmm. so they have to do something now, yep. right? right? And in a way, in a way, one can say that this is a coup for Biden to bring Yoon and Kishida together, but it could also be seen as Yoon and Kishida pulling America and making right. sure that you're in the game, right? Mm. So, so it's a it's it's there's another way to it, right? There's a push and pull to it, and I'm sure the same with AUKUS, uh, You mentioned. Uh, Australian agency in making AUKUS happen. Mm-hmm. So you can see that these middle powers are acting now. It gives like I go back to this point, it gives ASEAN an option. Yeah. You know, it gives ASEAN an option. Now that the middle powers are in, New Zealand has an option to play. Like it's it's now yeah. the middle power diplomacy and middle power strategic thinking that we want to keep Southeast Asia. We want to keep the Asia-Pacific and the Indo-Pacific a stable region, and and we want to keep it that way. Uh, We will do whatever we want, we will have to do, uh, collectively, right? So, could it be, I don't know if that could be the case, but could it be that we're starting to see the slow and organic development of a regional security architecture? Uh, Maybe, I don't know. Uh, But, I'm sure if if a regional security architecture will be developed over time, ASEAN will be there. These middle powers, you know, your ASEAN Regional Forum members, right? They will be there. Um, South Korea, you can't don't count that out. You know, uh, Japan, Australia, New Zealand, India. They'll be very much in this because they have a lot more to lose in a disruptive. Uh, Southeast Asia, South China Sea,
1: and Northeast Asia. So sure. and, and if the institutions are strong in the region, this will serve as a contrast to the BRICS yeah. or BRIC, yeah. right? Yeah. Which is our second topic, which yeah. we can kind of move segue on to into, into. Yeah, yeah. yeah let's
0: segue into that. And and I think we 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 saw uh, this last week and a lot of uh, things going around and. A lot of story about BRICS as well with Putin not being able to go because <laughs> because he could be risk being arrested. Uh, so uh, it was hosted in, in South Africa. And yesterday, they decided, yesterday or the day before, they decided to admit six new members, uh, which is really interesting, right? I mean, the six new members that they brought in, we have South America, we have Argentina, then you have Egypt, Ethiopia, UAE, Saudi Arabia, and Iran, on top of the existing Brazil, Russia, India, India, China, South Africa. Now, if you look at the numbers, (laughs) the original five, uh, 31.5% GDP of the world, right? So bigger than G7, actually. But I think much of it is actually China and Mm, India, India. you know, and India. So the two of them. So what do you make of that? You know, is it is it another poll that they're trying to make or just galvanizing your old uh,
4: non aligned global south? What's the story? I would struggle to a certain degree to see it as a poll because the first thing to remember is well, BRICS struggles to define itself. Over the course of all its various summits, Is it's used a plethora of words. It's called itself an institution, it's called itself a forum, it's called itself an organization. But it does not have an institutional structure. It has no secretariat, it has no treaty, it has no headquarters. It has one institution in the form of the New Development Bank, and that's about it. So the starting point, remember, is it struggles to define itself. And more importantly... There was a bit of a push and a pull in terms of the addition of its new members. India was opposed to it. Mm-hmm. Brazil was slightly hesitant at the last minute. India brought up new conditions um, involving per capita GDP and the fact that new members shouldn't um, shouldn't be under international sanctions. And there was a bit of a yeah. a, a bit of a back and forth between <laughs> India and China about that. And over the years. I mean, the organization is rather like the South Asian Association of Regional Cooperation, SAC, in my view, where its achievements are wonderful, but they're limited on the paper that they're written on. Yes. And in that aspect, I would struggle to call it a poll, but also it's important to remember that, that the undercurrent here is also the India-China relationship as far as BRICS is concerned. Yep. And there seems to be almost... The idea that, okay, China and Russia being part of BRICS is in some way China and Russia advocating for the Global South, I would struggle to go that far because China and Russia here are not acting out of the goodness of their heart. There is that there is that foreign policy objective, as far as those two are concerned, to turn BRICS into some form of an anti-Western alliance, whereas India's perspective, I would argue, is to keep it very much in the non-Western alliance part, and there is a difference between those two terms. Yeah. So... I think there is those internal matters of difference as far as BRICS is concerned. Classic strat- strategic autonomy by yep. the Indian. Yep. <laughs> but I, I think it's it's
2: it's great that Neil pointed out Suck because I was going to say that we've seen this story before, yes. right? Yes. You have this, re- this idea of a, a, a block of cooperation where two of the founding members are in a kind of in, in, the, in the conflict, basically, yeah, absolutely.
4: Yeah. And if we talk about the substantive aspect of BRICS, one of it being, okay, the economics part, yep. let's let, let's focus on that for a second, because that was the idea um, to increase and enhance economic cooperation. Yes, it has 31.5% of the world's GDP, mm-hmm. but inter, inter-BRICS trade is less than 6% between all members. So. Economically there's that aspect. Ideationally, it's always talked about multipolarity. And in that respect, I suppose we can relate it to our previous topics that there was this push for multipolarity as far as BRICS was concerned. Uh, and then it also adopted a bit of a stance on security issues when yeah. India started pushing for counterterrorism. But again, it's rather like SARC. It's it's very limited in what in what it's done so far, as I mean, how does one call it? An entity? I mean, it's it's. I think that's what I would call it. I think I tend to see it more as an economic
0: organization, yeah. and 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 at that, and it's, and it's like APEC. Yes, not, yeah. yes, yeah. The the difference between SARK and, mm. and 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 BRICS though is that you have significantly yes a big player in yes. China that is an exporter of capital as well, and and that India does not yes. uh, uh, does not have. And, and I think a lot of the motivation there is to create a different option I suppose mm. because of the what they call for reforms of the financial institutions yeah. that are created during the post-war uh, the constricting effect of yeah. many of that uh, you know when they when, I was surprised that they brought in Argentina to yes. be honest I think mm. I I my understanding is is that, Uh, the Brazilian president, Lula, was the one who was advocating for a South African, uh, Argentinian partner to it. Mm -hmm. And part of the reason is because Argentina is going to an election and a populist leader who Mm. advocates for the dollarization of the Argentinian economy (laughs) is going to be there. And uh, this this populist uh, candidate is an avid fan of uh, Donald Trump. And I'm sure a leftist a leader like uh, President Lula would be very worried to have a populist leader in Brazil's doorstep. doorstep. So they want to advocate for another member. But I, you know, the advantage for Argentina, I suppose, is that it gives them a different option for financing to get them out of their economic doldrums. Like they, my understanding is their inflation rate is like 100%. 100%. You know I mean? Serious, serious inflation. And, and the conditions that are being leveled on them by the IMF is huge, huge. very constricting. So they're looking for other options to, mm. to finance. So, in a way, Argentina's entry into the BRICS gives a little bit of lifeline to the current incumbent party. Yep. yep. You mm-hmm. know, uh, an economic lifeline, so to speak. But how long will that last when you have? Really, relatively weaker economies, apart from the, apart from the UAE and Mm. the and and your
3: Saudi Arabia, but you know Ethiopia,
0: yeah, you have
4: Iran,
3: Uh, yeah, very small economies, and and because one of them, as if you've said, is trying to give themselves some option by weaning kind of the possibility of weaning themselves off the U.S. dollar. Yeah. Mm. But the other thing is, if you think about the cases of Egypt and Ethiopia, it's more about, you know, kind of pouting, being angry yeah. about American aid being cut off. Yeah. And so they had to turn elsewhere, yeah. uh, you know? Uh, Ethiopia now is uh, just recovering from a major civil war and yeah, yeah, yeah. reconstruction yeah, yeah. Yeah. money. Yeah. Where does it turn to? And yeah. so is Egypt's economy is in major shambles. On a symbolic it level, you
4: would also apply that to Saudi Arabia because the U.S.-Saudi relationship hasn't been the most pleasant in, right. in, in recent years. And yes. if you're talking about the symbolism of it, yes, perhaps some people might argue that this, this displays that Saudi Arabia is also expanding its options. On, on In terms of the workings of the group, I think it's also important to remember that you're increasing the number of veto players because you're increasing members yep. as everything has to be done based on consensus and a, a unanimous resolution. So how much, is, how much is it going to achieve if you go from 6 to 11 veto players? That's an interesting question. Yeah, I
0: think it, it's very interesting to see, though, that uh, you know, much of this impetus towards moving towards weaning themselves off the U.S. dollar uh, really started in 2016, 2017 as well, mm. and then of course the fact that the last uh, since the global financial crisis with quantitative easing and what have you, mm-hmm. the United States has actually literally exported much of its much mm. of its economic problems to the yep. rest of the world. So if we if we purely look at just the economic and financial and monetary issues, then we can understand why some of these countries are doing what they're doing because they're really worried that. Another quantitative easing or financial problems in the United States affects their, you know, their their assets yeah. uh, uh, very very seriously. So my understanding, for example, is that China and Brazil uh, have now started using local currencies mm. uh, for their transactions for their trade, so they don't have to go through uh, using United States dollar anymore. And I heard, if I'm not mistaken, India and Saudi Arabia. Yeah on oil yep. yeah. because it used to be everybody knows that oil is quoted in American dollars, dollars. that was a, yeah. that was part of the hegemonic uh thing that hmm. developed and what it does is you know from from a banking perspective you know I used to be a banker you know you save money that way yeah. because now you don't have to deal with US dollar you just pay you just pay yeah. uh the, the Saudi arabians their currency they pay you uh, in indian rupee for your currency and then you avoid uh, dealing with the American mm. financial system or the risk of holding United States dollar, yeah. right? So so I can see that from that point. But uh, to say that you know this organization is going to be a poll, mm. I I I I can't see it right now.
1: I yeah, really yeah. can't. Yeah, so it's interesting, interesting though. From, from New Zealand, sorry. Go ahead, go oh, ahead. New perspective, You know what? As long as this is contributing to more stability in the in the relevant regions. Of, of these countries, you know, that's that's a good thing. You know, um, it, it also, by the way, alleviates pressure on the part of the Europeans and Americans to actually have to solve problems in other parts of the world. So, you know, I think, um, you know, if we look at this as contributing to stability and order in the system, then that's a plus that we can all embrace, right? Assuming it works. Yeah,
0: assuming it works. Well. Yeah, it works. And, yeah and, and I, it, I think that's the,
2: the, the most yeah. important thing is assuming, assuming it, works it works because we know the story of, you know, admitting economically weak members into a block and the burden that puts on the block itself. Yeah. And you've got to look, Chinese yuan, Russian rubles, uh, the Brazilian dollar, in the past, you know, month, how have they been performing? Everything's been dropping. You know, you look at all the, the economic statistics coming out of China and how China's economy is pivoting inwards already. You know, can China, as the second largest economy in the world, continue to sustain BRICS? Mm. Move, not, not, you know, not in the immediate short term or the medium term, but in the long term, as as a if they want to institutionalize it as an uh, international institution.
0: Yeah. You know. Although having said that, I mean, you, you know, we we uh, I've read a report that uh, while China would like to lessen its dependence on the United States dollar, it's not seeking for an international uh, uh, internationalization of the renminbi. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, because it's very costly to do that, you mm. all of a sudden will lose monitor sovereignty and monetary control. I mean, for, you know, in the IR literature, particularly in the IPE literature, we talk about, you know, the, that the United States is able to gain a lot mm. by being the reserve currency, but it's also a lot of costs, you yes. know, in a way uh, there are statistics that shown that there are more U.S. dollars, four times more U.S. dollar held outside of the United States yes. than it is in mm. the United yes. States. And you can, you can see what it means for the burden uh, mm, in, yeah. in a way of, of, of having Losing the ability to have uh, monetary
3: control. Well, well, if anything, you know, if anything, uh, China has shown a history of not really wanting to foot the cost of anything. may not be economic or security. But having said that, I'm interested in the, this is 15th this year. It will be 16th next year. You know, South Africa did something this year, which is to invite 67 other nations, around 40, I think have expressed applied interest. To join. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So it will be interesting to see what that consolation looks like if ever, you know, uh, China and India agree and then even Brazil agree to terms of whom to admit or not.
4: Yes. Yeah, yes. But,
3: the,
0: but but again, you know, who's going to foot the bill? Mm. You know, if all of them are essentially... Uh, Your African union? union? Yeah. You know, if, if their economy, if many of their economies are essentially in intensive care units.
4: Yeah. Well, one of the countries being considered was Venezuela. And if, and if that isn't in an intensive care unit, I don't know what is. Yeah. But I would suspect India would have certain reservations of institutionalizing it. I think mm. from, a, from a strategic autonomy perspective, it's okay for as long as it remains an entity or a block. But the second you start formalizing it, I think you'll have New, New Delhi have some certain have yeah. reservations uh, against this. Yeah.
0: I see it more like developing towards an APEC. Yes. Yeah. It's an economic forum. Yeah, it's a good forum. You
3: or know ju- everybody just wants a share of the projected one trillion dollar Chinese aid that's supposed to go out in the mm. coming years. Maybe <laughs> that's that's the other motivation in there for yeah, some of these other yeah. countries. But I, I
0: think if you if you think of it as a clearinghouse, so to speak, mm. uh, as in a, uh, like these that the countries who are members of BRICS can talk to each other about uh, how to do trade without mm. using a third party currency. Uh, is again one of those possibilities, but but like you said, you know, Neil, the statistics about intra-BRICS yeah. trade is very low. Yeah, you know, at six percent, that's pretty much nothing. And it's going I mean? for,
4: for fifteen years now. That's ample opportunity to try and increase that figure.
0: Yeah, well, you can see why. I mean, because uh, most of the growth are still not happening no. in the global south. Unfortunately, yeah. as much as as much as this is, uh, if you think of you know. Championing for the global south, and and certainly we want development to be much more even across the globe. Mm -hmm. But the reality is is that uh, through various issues, Mm. whether it be violence and stability, you know, and problem of political Mm. stability that does not allow many of these countries to have long term growth and development, um, it's a problem. And I do not see the Saudi Arabians and the and the Emiratis. Underwriting all the development mm. and paying off all those debt. Do you, Nick? Can you hear me? Sorry, yeah, no, yeah, I yeah. don't.
1: Go ahead. Um, and um, you know, at the end of the day, and this is a theme for all our podcasts. I mean, the centrality of state interests, yeah, yeah. Mm. institutions. I mean, that is always there, and um, you know, particularly during turbulent times, um, all the more so. And. You know, it could just be that this is one of those institutions that uh, loses its way over time. Just like, for example, you know, in the Cold War, we had CETO that you know became a <laughs> <Yeah>. history. <laughs> Obviously, not a economic alliance, but uh, you know, uh, you know, let's see how this goes. And uh, you know, it, it's it's certainly a test for China in terms of showing it's able to actually lead, <laughs> and that has to be kept in mind. In yeah,
0: I think I think uh, I can see, you know, that. It might have longer life than a CETO yeah. uh, because it might not end up too formalized. Uh, but really, I, I I don't see it beyond just very very straight mm. economic stuff. And, yeah. And yeah.
2: Because it, it's very difficult to imagine any sort of security cooperation among some of the members. Not not. Let's ignore India and China and just talk about the 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 you know the. Middle Eastern countries that they emitted, mm. Iran, Saudi Arabia, two two poles in the Middle East who who are seeking to define the the identity of mi- Middle Eastern poli-
0: the Middle Eastern politics and the region in their image, you mm. know? Yeah, but the interesting thing about that, that Saudi Arabia and Iran came in, is in a way a coup uh of Xi Jinping. You know, that uh March this year he was able to broker that that, you know, detente between the two and rapprochement between the two. How long it will For last, <laughs> how long it will last, we don't know. <laughs> but but what ties them together, though, is the interesting part, right? It's not the ideational between the Sunni and Shia yeah. leadership in the, in the Middle East. But what ties them together is the fact that, you know, these two are major oil-producing countries. Yeah. You know, they're major oil-producing countries. The United States now is no longer a an importer. They are also an exporter. exporter. So, you know, just, you know, forget about the security side. Look about the the money-making side, right? Mm. So now we have the U.S. that is already competing against us. So we need to tie up together in order to garner the market and maybe wean ourselves of the U.S. dollar. So yeah. who knows? Mm-hmm. That, that could be that calculation that is going amongst
1: these countries, yeah. uh, like, so, like so, I so said, it's a state, of interest. state interest. And Chinese interests, right? It's state, it's state interest. Getting, uh, a, a supply of various materials, including oil.
0: Yeah, oil. yeah, for China, I mean, they, they're no, they used to produce oil. <laughs> they're not enough yeah. oil producing anymore. So securing yeah. these very important oil producers to continue China economic development is still there. So as you say, Nick, uh, despite all these institutional movement, you know, international relations is still state centric. <laughs> you know? It's we discovered that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, like we said, you know, in our in our in, in, in the assumptions of anarchy has forced countries to be state centric, power centric, you know, and and, and rational in, mm-hmm. in in its action you know, in a way. So very interesting and something that something that we can uh continue to uh observe and uh, certainly look at, Uh, we will continue to follow these many news uh, for you guys. And we'll end our episode here. And thank you again for uh, listening to our program. And please subscribe uh, to our program. And like I said, uh, the gang over here, we really enjoy doing this and sharing our thoughts. And we hope that you find it very helpful. Thank you very much.